turn left up here by the stop sign. Okay. And it's very, you see the high schools down there. <coughs> St. Lawrence, Newfoundland, Canada. Population 1,697 souls. Before the mine closed, they were miners and fishermen. A five-hour drive from the city, perched at the tip of a rocky peninsula, jutting into the North Atlantic. Now just keep on going. Ina Edwards is the unofficial town historian. She's taking me to see the new school playground. But before we get there, there's a whole story to tell. A story that begins 3,000 kilometers south of here, in DeKalb County, Georgia, USA. If you'll step in here, I'll show you what I have in here that I'll always keep. That's St. Lawrence. That photograph. Yeah, that's 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 St. Lawrence. Now, my here's my grandmother, great grandmother and grandfather, who were born slaves. I don't know exactly when he was born, but I know she was born in 1852. Well, I'm Lanier Phillips. I was born March 14, 1923, and I live in DeKalb County. And DeKalb County didn't finish schools for black people until 1939. The white people say, and educate, they call them Negroes back then. If said uh, educated Negro was unfit for a slave, you can't control him if he gets an education. So let's don't let him get an education, you know, keep him from that, and then we can control him. Then they had the Klan, the Ku Klux Klan, and they instilled fear in the black people. At least they tried, and I know they had fear into me from five or six years old. But black people had a chance to go to a so-called school. They would build a school themselves. I was going to a school, but the Ku Klux Klan burned the school down, you know? Yes, sir, they, they burned. I remember that clear. I can close my eyes and see the flames going, standing and watching the school burn and listen to the grown-ups, you know, say, they'll never let us learn or let our children learn to read, you know. I saw no future. I, I, I had no dreams. Only thing I could say, well, maybe I'll be a sharecropper or, or something, you know, once I grew up. So in 41, I joined the Navy. Well, they had blacks in one place and whites in another. And blacks better not, you know, interfere, go down to the whites, you know, showers or bathroom or anything like that. And the blacks on board ship, they could only be mess attendants, serving and taking what they call taking care of your officer. You were assigned a certain amount of officers. You kept his shoes shine, his clothing, you know, ready, and his room clean. And uh, you'd be out for 30 days or more. You had to wash those officers' underwear. 
And uh, I went aboard ship. My first ship was the Truxton. And, uh, well, on board ship, they had mess hall, like, and they'd take the tables down from the overhead and set them up for the whites to eat. The whites sat. The blacks had nowhere to sit to eat. They had to stand and eat. The officers had a wardroom with chairs and table, a tablecloth and, you know, china and all, and we would serve them. They would sit there and eat, but all the blacks had to stand in this little pantry and eat. February the 18th, 1942. The south coast of Newfoundland. Night. The home port was Boston. Once we left Boston, we slept what we call ready roll. We didn't pull our clothing off because we knew that the submarines were there. And uh, we would always join up off Halifax, off Nova Scotia, with convoy hundreds of ships. We were heading for Iceland. Marine forecast for Newfoundland, for south coast, storm warning, winds northerly. And I heard the EXO, the executive officer, tell the captain, say, this is going to be a rough one. I'm Gus Hetchigary. I was about 16 and a half in 1942. A young fellow uh, just finished high school in St. Lawrence. It was a huge, it was a hell of a storm. There's no, no doubt about it at all. I don't know what the estimate of the winds were, would be, but it had the full strife of the Atlantic. And I guess many people said, maybe it was even said in our house, what a dreadful night. We pitted poor sailors on the sea tonight. Truxton had no radar. So what they did was relying on dead reckoning. Before they knew it, they were right into the cliff. Bang. I thought we had been torpedoed. I didn't know what. I was in my bed when it hit. Down I came. I had all my clothes on. I had my life jacket. And I grabbed a pair of shoes. I didn't know if it was mine or what. And went topside. Well, it was dark. And... It was storming. I mean, it was picking the, the truckston up and looked like just slamming it against the rock and you could hear the steel grinding. Then when they began to break, they finally turned on the big searchlight and all you could see was the cliffs and the rocks. It was like between two rocks, like, and it just picked the ship up and down it would go, and wash began to wash the fellows overboard. I almost got washed over two or three times, but I'd grab their lifeline and hold on. At about uh, 7.30 in the morning, my father called and in a, a somewhat frantic voice said, get down here as quickly as you can, get a hold of the driver of that pickup truck, load up all the ropes and lines that you could uh, find in the area and uh, get down to Chambers Cove. The ship had begun to take on so much water 
we knew it was, you know, going to sink. They had said that uh, no man could live in the water more than five minutes because of the cold. As I, we came up over the hill and looked down, you know, here 300 feet or so below, right in the middle of a sort of a horseshoe cove, this destroyer, this Truxton, partly submerged, but the full length of the rail was still above water. All these people uh, hanging on, if you like, to dear life on the rail. Some were just swept up on those jagged cliffs and then you, you know, tumble down and so on. It was, it was a pretty dreadful sight. About this time, she began to break and all the oil had come out. Oil was coming out and uh, everybody looked like little rats in the water covered with that, that crude oil. I, along with others, went down hand over hand on a rope. I told the other blacks that were standing there with me, I said, well, you know, we're going to die. I said, if we stay on board this ship, I said, at least we can die fighting. I said, let's go. When I jumped in there, it was like I felt just one quick pain like that went over my entire body and it was all over. I didn't feel any pain after that. I just felt sleepy. And the heavy bunker sea oil was beginning to come into the shoreline and the, uh, the water, salt water, would rise and then recede. And as it receded, you'd see this black hulk, you know, digging in, clutching onto the rocks and waiting for somebody to run and, try and grab them and try to save them. And when we got ashore, I said, well, I made it here, I might as well die, you know? So I just laid down there on the beach and I closed my eyes to die, you know? This is the end. And uh, this fellow came and he, 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 he said, get him up, don't let him lie there. I said, pick him up. Say he'll surely die if he, he lays there. I say, walk him around. So he pulled me up. And he had on a cap and coat. I knew he wasn't Navy. And uh, he began to walk me around. And uh, from there, it brought life to me. I said, man, here's a white person who wants me to live. And, you know, if I had been in Georgia, they'd say, kick him out of the way, you know. Let's help these white people. Then uh, I think I passed out. They took them to the, um, where there was a temporary first aid station erected. And of course the call came to the women. All the women had a place to go out to clean them. And that's where the story came in at Lanier. Now the little funny story. See, he was there among all the other survivors. The ladies were cleaning them up and scrubbing them up because they were covered with tar, with this old stuff, this crude oil. They were so filthy. They had to be, every part of them had to be washed. So when he opened his eyes... I could see these white ladies all around. There I was, stock naked, on this table. And I heard a, a, one of the ladies say, this is the curliest hair I've ever seen. I said, oh, boy, this is the end of me, you know. I said, hell, they're going to say, get him out of here. He's black, you know. And then she said, this poor fellow 
the tar went right into his pores. I'm scrubbing and scrubbing, and I can't get him clean. You know, and I spoke up. She said, King, and I said, well, you can't get it off. It's the color of the skin. And she said, oh, I'll get it off all right. And so she continued to scrub. <laughs> Violet fight, but she's dead now. She had never seen a black man before. So, I mean, she didn't differentiate. She thought, just thought he was a white man with, with the black into his pores so bad she couldn't, she couldn't get it out. And I was thinking, oh boy, are they going to lynch me? Here I am. If I had been in Georgia, they would have ran those white women out of town and maybe lynch me for letting them bathe me, you know? And of course, when the men were taking him out to the different homes, she said, bring him to my home. So that evening then, she prepared supper. And he, he was amazed that he ate with the family. And he, he drank out of china cups, the same as the, as the family. And they put me in the bed, and this lady, she would come in and say, are you warm, are you all right? And she did this the remainder of the night. I didn't go to sleep anymore because I was still afraid. I didn't know where I was or what was going to happen to me. But then I kept asking myself, did, did, did I die? And, you know, and I went to heaven. Uh, what's going on? Well, it hasn't been a day pass since that happened. It hasn't been a day pass I didn't think about St. Lawrence. They, they, they changed my entire philosophy of life. So they gave me leave. I think I got 15 days leave. And I went to see my aunt who lived in Chattanooga. And we would catch the bus from there to go into town. And the blacks had to sit behind the whites. So when we got on, my aunt and I, the back seat was filled. And here was this white guy. So we sat in the seat in front of him. He reached and grabbed me by the neck and pushed me up and said, nigga, don't you sit in front of me. And my, I was going to fight him. I felt like fighting him then because of the treatment I got in St. Lawrence. And what the people have treated me like a human being, I said, well, hell, I'm a human. I'm no longer a, a, a slave in the lowest and the least, the last. I say, I'm going to do it. I say, if I can give my life and fight this war the same as everybody else and can't even ride a bus when I pay the same fare as everybody else, but I can't be seated as everyone else. My mother, my aunt said, just be quiet, just be quiet. I said, we'll be in a few minutes, so I thought about that. They sent me to uh, Jacksonville, Florida. And when I got to Jacksonville, I was hungry. And when I got off, and walked into the station, I saw all these prisoners, Italian and German prisoners, and they had army MPs, Americans, got them. They had them inside the dining room eating. And I knew that the blacks 
could go to a window or something somewhere, but I knew they were, wouldn't be allowed to go into that dining room. And I thought about the people of St. Lawrence, how they had fed me, gave me clothing and put me in their bed. And I looked at the prisoners, and here I am in American uniform. So I went in to ask, you know, where does the colored, is what they call us then, where can the colored uh, Negroes, you know, get something to eat? I'm trying to make it to the Naval Air Station. So I went to go in, and this one cop grabbed me by the collar and slung me on the ground. And when he slung me on the ground, he put his foot right on my neck and actually pulled his gun out and pulled a hammer back. I hear it click. I thought he was going to shoot me. He said, you black son of a bitch, I'll blow your black brains out. He said, you know better than to come in here where these white people are. So the white people were the German prisoners in the Italian prison. And here I am in an American uniform. I thought about the people of St. Lawrence. From there, they called me a troublemaker and was transferred there to Corpus Christi, Texas. They had a special table for the blacks who worked in the officers' barracks to eat in what were called general mess. We could sit down, but we had to go way back in the corner to this special table. So I'd think about the people of St. Lawrence. So I told them, I didn't want no special table. I said, it seems like you're doing something special for me, giving me a special table. He said, well, we are. So I don't want that. I said, don't do me any special favors. I said, treat me as a human being, as a sailor, the same as the rest of the sailors. He said, all right, going back to the barracks. When I got down the barracks, a messenger came down and said, Phillips. I said, here. He said, pack your sea bag and hammock. You're being transferred. You've got two hours. They said I was causing problems. I was tired of shining shoes. I was tired of washing dishes and pots and pans. I was tired of it. I had 17 years in the Navy then as a mess attendant. And I was looking when I get out. I wanted to learn a trade, and I wrote uh, the first black congressman, and I wrote the Bureau of Naval Personnel a letter and told them I thought I was qualified to be something other than a mess attendant. And I did get a chance to go to sonar school by pushing and fighting for it. Blacks weren't supposed to go to sonar school. And uh, when I got that letter back saying report to Fleet Sonar School, I really gave the credit to St. Lawrence because had it not been for St. Lawrence, I wouldn't have been writing, you know, the powers to be because I had been brainwashed and I was so inferior to the white man to don't look forward, you know, to ever being anything. But the people in St. Lawrence showed me that, you know, I was a human being the same as all other human beings. I got orders report to Fleet Sonar School. They called me down. Counselor wants to see you. And I went in to see the counselor. Phillips said, we got good news. I said, oh, I'm going to start class. He said, no, 
we've contacted Washington, and they go along with it and make you chief steward, mess attendant. He said, because we don't think you can make it through sonar school. I said, well, sir, you can take the first class if you want. I said, but just don't throw me out. He said, well, you know you're going to flunk out, don't you? I said, no, I don't know that. I said, give me a chance. If I flunk out, so be it. He said, all right, you start the next class. So I started the next class, and I went through sonar school. And when I went aboard the ship, the Bailey, I walked up. I saluted the flag and saluted the OD, the officer of the deck. And he told the messenger, who's always there, say, show him where the messenger's compartment. I said, no, sir. I said, I'm sonar tech. He said, you what? I said, I'm sonar tech. Screams of gassed, beaten, and trampled Negro civil rights marchers in Selma, Alabama were heard around the world last Sunday. The next day, I said, I'm going to Selma. The possibility of further violence seemed certain. As another I wanted to be a part of that because I, I, I knew that the way I was changed from accepting the inhumane treatment that was given to me, it was worth fighting to be a, a human being. And that's why I went to Selma. And every way you look, you look down the barrel of a gun at the time. It'll be detrimental to your safety to continue this march, and I'm saying that this is an unlawful assembly. You have to disperse. You are ordered to disperse. And I looked at this man and said, why can't this white man be like the white people of St. Lawrence? turn around and I have no hatred for the, the Ku Klux Klan or, or any human being. I pray for these people, these racists and bigots, that something might happen to them, not go through the icy waters of the North Atlantic, but something will happen to make them change, as happened to me, and make them change and look at all people as God's children and not look at people as a white, uh, a brown, or a black, but look at them as a human being. And I believe that eventually they will. I may not see it, they will. There's the board right there, look. And now it's 58 years since the shipwreck. And in St. Lawrence, there's this playground. See, there's the playground, established by the students in Marion Elementary School in 1999. I'm not a rich man, but every contribution I can make, I make it to the people of St. Lawrence. I realize since the mine closed, the economy is way down. He has shown gratitude, no doubt about it, you know and they're trying to get a new playground for the elementary school. And that's about, I have a nice check 
to present from Lanier. Lanier Phillips, USS Truxton Survivor. And then on the other side is the USS Truxton, lost February 18, 1942. And the Marion Elementary School logo is mm -hmm. in the center. And the name of the playground is Lanier Phillips Playground. I seek no recognition. I just want the people of St. Lawrence to know how much I appreciate them. And I want them to know what they did for me. They put into my mind, it's etched in there, it's, it's, it's solid, like liquid steel. Hot steel became cold and solid. It's into me and it'll never leave me.